Now we come to lecture number five. And uh, the following one, six, is, uh, these two could be considered as uh, consecutive parts of what I call the second greatest story ever told. You might find this a little bit pretentious. A uh, number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, there was a... We know you have a good sense of humor. But forgive me, I, I settle for the second <laughs> greatest story. And it is the story of how real bills originated. And if you have any inclination, artistic inclination, such as, for example, making comic strips, which is quite an art, uh, you might just try to figure out how you would go ahead and produce a comic strip on, based on that story, as I will relate it to you. On the other hand, uh, you could also put it on a stage, try to think of this story in terms of a drama with actors acting out the various parts. I find it quite entertaining and interesting and I hope you will too. You, we might even call this the most uh, entertaining part of the course. Um, please feel free to add to it with your questions or suggestions and, uh, and uh, make it a, a, a joint effort. I was trying to encourage my own children who have some artistic gifts to draw that comic strip and uh, must confess didn't work out. They thought it was a good idea, but when it came to execution, fizzled out, didn't get anywhere. Anyhow, the story is really about the origin of paper currency as well. There are really two explanations how paper currency came into being. And the common explanation is that uh, paper currency was originally just a warehouse receipt for gold left on deposit with a uh, goldsmith or uh, jeweler or somebody uh, who was working in that trade. And eventually the business of the goldsmith evolved into being a bank. So uh, originally it wasn't a bank but people found it a convenient arrangement 
rather than carrying gold money around with them, they just left it on deposit and <coughs> the uh, goldsmith on instruction, which was a written order, evolved into what we call a check today. The uh, goldsmith made payment on behalf of the depositor. The trick was that the goldsmith, according to this version of the story, the goldsmith found it possible to issue fictitious warehouse certificates or the other way around, somebody made the deposit, then the goldsmith would go ahead and use up the gold for other purposes without actually uh, cancelling the warehouse deposit. So in other words, fraud was involved in the origin of paper currency. Now, I hope nobody here would challenge me that I am partial to paper money. I'm not. But I find this story just too incredible. <laughs> I want to give more credit to our ancestors that they would not fall such an easy victim to such a crude swindle. And therefore I dismiss this story. I don't understand how uh, serious people, monetary scientists, to, could treat this story with respect. Yet, the fact is that paper money is around, it's fraudulent today as we know, and it's also true that during centuries of this fraudulent activity, uh, people who understood what was behind could not put an end to it. But still, I wanted to look for a more reasonable explanation of the origin of paper money. <coughs> and that is the second greatest story ever told. And uh, the uh, cast, imagining this in a theatrical setting, there are uh, various protagonists involved. These are people who are engaged in the production of cloth. Uh, in particular cloth for <coughs> making suits and dresses. And to make it simple, let's assume that uh, the cloth is made of cotton and uh, therefore there is a cotton dealer involved who is shipping cotton to the spinner. The spinner an old trade. His job it was to spin the thread 
which and so that's the second actor in the cast and the thread would be delivered to the weaver and the weaver the third actor is the one who take the thread and weaves it in his loom his loom and, uh, that's his job now when he's finished and the cloth is ready for shipping he will ship it to the cloth uh, dealer when the cloth dealer has a shop and his customers are we imagine for the sake of simplicity you could put in others if you wish you could put in cutters and tailors and this and, and uh, other people but just for the sake of simplicity I want to keep it simple for the cotton dealer the spinner the weaver and the cloth merchant who is selling directly to the consumer uh, think of old days when people were doing the sewing at home and uh, the cloth dealer is selling the finished cloth to his customers uh, and that is the cycle of supplying the the cloth to the consumer. So these are the four protagonists of the story. There will be others later on, including the goldsmith. We'll see how he will come into the picture. Uh, but to begin with, it's just that simple that the cotton dealer shipped cotton to the spinner and build the spinner for the goods received the cotton so that was a piece of paper which the spinner signed saying accepted with his signature and gave it back to the cotton dealer and the bill specified not just the quantity and quality of cotton involved but also what the price will be but it was not a cash price it was a price to be paid uh, at maturity of the bill and we may assume that it was 91 days for reasons which we already discussed together earlier so the return the bill was returned to the cotton dealer and it was supposed to be settled in coins in gold coins in real money in constitutional money now the spinner has spun the cotton into yarn I said thread yarn that's the uh, out that's the product of the spinners uh, uh, productive effort uh, 
And when he had a sufficient quantity of yarn, he would deliver the product, the yarn, to the weaver, which used this as the raw material for his job, which was weaving. And the same process repeated itself. The weaver had to sign the bill. The bill stated that quantity of yarn has been delivered, quantity quality specified, and um, the uh, weaver signed this I accept and his signature. And again, a, a certain sum was specified, the amount of money which the weaver was supposed to pay at maturity to the spinner and it's payable in real money, in gold coins. So again we have to make a decision here just what the maturity was and to be realistic we assume that the cotton takes three months to reach the ultimate consumer while uh, the yarn is already a semi-finished good so it would take less time might assume that it would take two months so the second bill was to mature in two months time so there are two bills so far the and uh, it's convenient to call them okay the first bill we can call cotton dealer on spinner cotton dealer on spinner that means that the bill was drawn on the spinner by the cotton dealer the second bill was drawn on the weaver so we would call it spinner on weaver the spinner draws the bill on the weaver the weaver is supposed to pay the spinner now the weaver is getting busy and he will weave the cloth on his looms and his and uh, when he has sufficient quantity he would deliver the cloth to the cloth dealer and the third bill will originate from this transaction which we can call the weaver on the cloth dealer and the same thing stating the quantity quality of the product cloth in this case and uh, the amount of money which will be payable at maturity in coin in gold coin and we may assume that the ultimate uh, consumer is already so much closer to the maturing product, we call this the maturing product, that uh, just one month is sufficient uh, for the uh, cloth merchant, cloth dealer to sell the 
clot to the ultimate consumer. So these three bills, one is maturing in three months, this one in two months, and this one in one month. And if at the end of the three months, it's easy to see what's going to happen. The consumer buys the cloth, pays in gold coin. Now, this, this is where subsidiary coinage comes in. You can't break the gold coin, so you have to get changed somehow. And uh, the cloth merchant will get the full price, but then he will have his share and he has to pass on the rest because there is a bill maturing uh, within days, so to speak, because we are at the end of the third month, we assume, and uh, so he passes on the remainder to the uh, to the weaver. By the way, the uh, this bill. Uh, is then signed, paid, and it's cancelled. Whatever uh, power it had to settle an outstanding obligation has been fulfilled. So then the weaver is going to take the money, his, take out his own share, and the remainder will go on and he will pay the spinner who has then the job of settling with the cotton dealer. So th this is all very straightforward. It's understandable that the, there is always a, um, a small amount of adjustment necessary at every time because these three bills are not drawn uh, for the same amount of money. They are different amounts of money, but the final, and that's the point, the final payment, the gold coin of the ultimate consumer can liquidate all these outstanding obligations. We don't have to bother with the little uh, technical point that a small change is necessary to make adjustments because these bills are drawn for different amounts. The point is that in three months time the uh, consumer has been supplied with the cloth and all the obligations which arose on the way of the maturing product. Yesterday I uh, pointed out that the product moves in this direction and the payments are in the other direction, but that's no problem. This, this uh, uh, goes through uh, without any difficulty. So there it is, clearing in action. That's clearing. No loan, no borrowing, it's clearing. The moving, the moving 
product moves sufficiently fast to the ultimate consumer so that in anticipation of that final payment um, the merchants issue these bills and these bills without calling for any gold calling gold out of circulation can finance the production of cloth. So the important thing is that you didn't have to invade the pool of circulating gold coins three or four times because the one gold coin of the consumer could liquidate all these claims which arose because of the uh, uh, production of the cloth. So clearing in action, that's what you are looking at, clearing in action. So this, this is quite remarkable because it's a maximal economy in the use of the gold coin, yet it's a gold system. It's absolutely necessary that the consumer should have the gold coin because that is the secret why that thing works. Gold has the power to make this process possible. Uh, you can describe it if you wish that the gold standard is not a fetter, a break on the technological progress. Because you see the division of labor, these merchants divide the labor involved. There is a spinner, there is a weaver, etc. They are performing different tasks, but in themselves neither one would do the uh, necessary job. So it works better if division, division of labor is involved. But there's no magic number in, the four is not a magic number. Under different circumstances you might have twice as many uh, p uh, trade, tradesmen who are using the principle of division of labor and that always happens when a technological uh, uh, invention makes the production process even uh, more efficient. So there was a charge that the gold standard is a fetter, is a break on techn technological uh, improvements because as more and more uh, people are engaged in this division of labor, more and more payments will have to be made and they have, will have to be made in gold and uh, that's a drain on the system and it sets a limit above which the improvement is no longer possible or if it is possible it's going to uh, become difficult and, uh, and that's the charge that the gold standard is a fetter but if you think of this example involving the four protagonists, 
then you realize that this charge is doesn't hold water. In fact, the uh, clearing which is involved uh, makes it possible that the one single gold coin of the ultimate consumer can finance the whole operation. Uh, we just keep repeating the condition that it's always assumed that the, move, the movement of the maturing good is fast enough. In other words, the consumer <laughs> demand is urgent enough so that the clearing works and it works within 91 days. This would not work if there is a more involved process where it would take a whole year or even several years for the product to mature, but it would certainly work if the underlying good moves fast enough so that the journey can be completed in 91 days. So <coughs> The bill of exchange, the real bill, these pieces of paper which the tradesman exchanged, uh, makes, uh, it opens up new possibilities for trade. And that's what progress depends on. More trade, more efficient exchange of goods. Now, that was chapter one. And chapter two is an innovation which these tradespeople make. One day, the cloth merchant told the weaver that he would be glad to carry a larger inventory of cloth, maybe even three times as large, because that would enable him to offer a greater variety to his customers. Just think of different colors, okay? So they can choose. And some customers want red, some want blue, whatever. And if he carries a greater inventory, then these uh, uh, demands can be satisfied. Well, naturally, the weaver was very happy about this suggestion. Uh, it meant that he could deliver more cloth to the uh, cloth merchant. So they agreed that instead of drawing, remember the uh, bill which the weaver drew on the cloth merchant was a one-month bill. So they agreed that uh, since a larger in, uh, inventory was involved, uh, they should draw a three-month bill. So whenever the weaver delivered this larger inventory to the cloth merchant, uh, it would be a three-month bill for the larger quantity and larger amount. There's no difficulty about that. And then, of course, it is backing up now. The weaver told the spinner that he would be happy to have 
a larger quantity of yarn and uh, they remember had a two-month bill the spinner on weaver bill was a two-month bill so they agreed that uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't make this also a three-month bill considering the fact that a larger amount of yarn was exchanging hands and again this made it possible for the weaver to have a larger variety of yarn for certain purposes a thicker or thinner yarn would be more suitable or the color or whatever I just leave it to your imagination to see how they could take advantage of the possibility that the spinner can deliver a larger quantity of yarn to the weaver. So now, all three merchants were drawing bills, one on the next. The three bills had this, um, and the big, big change was that the three bills had the same maturity and same length. Okay, they originally they also had the same maturity too, but now they have the same length. They were all three-month bills, and that had certain advantages. The new system worked very well. The new supplies were ordered, any adjustment in quantity, quality could be made as the demand uh, required and the consumer, the various changes in the taste of the consumer could be accommodated. None of the merchants had any intention or plan to enlarge the inventory any further so they could resist the temptation of extending the three-month maturity to longer because you could argue the same way as you could increase your inventory uh, you could also make the maturity longer and then of course this could just uh, be repeated but there, there was no reason for them uh, wanting to uh, increase the inventory why not because of the uh, fickleness of the consumer the consumer uh, has capricious demand and he may just or she may just change her idea what she wanted. If you have too big an inventory and the consumer changes uh, his or her demand then there is trouble because you have to work down a, uh, uh, an inventory which is no longer in fashion. So everybody was happy with the fact that we have now an inventory which can which is f still flexible at the same time gives enough choice to the consumer 
and uh, the, tr- uh, the production of cloth was going on smoothly and without a hitch. At, at this point, I would like to put in something about risk. You see, in general, production and all economic activities involve risks. The risks that you produce for the market without having a firm order in your hand, and then it turns out when you put your product on the market that it may not be in demand the same way as you envisaged, so there will be mismatches and miscalculations and uh, the losses could arise. So this is undeniable, it's a fact of life that risks are involved in production as everywhere else. However, the point of our little discussion is that there is always a reduction of risks involved. Because these various adjustments which are made in the size, quality of inventory, and even the length of the maturity, and so on, these at every step of the way there is a reduction of the risks. So why the billing system works is because the risk is acceptable or at least it's smaller than if these individual tradesmen were just producing completely in the blind without knowing what the market condition is. This is also a communication system. It's not just a way of financing the movement of the maturing good. It's more than that. There is a communication because every time there is a reordering, the there's a feedback. The cloth merchant is the one who knows the who is in direct contact with the ultimate consumer. So any kind of information he gets during the course of his business, he can feed back to the others. So if any adjustment has to be made as far as quantity, quality, or style, what have you, is concerned, this can be made smoothly and the size of the inventory is optimal to have that, to make that adjustment, speedy adjustment to the consumer demand possible. <clears throat> now chapter three is about another invention improving the billing system of these traders. Sometime later the four tradesmen met in a pub 
And over a pint of beer, they discussed the success in financing the production and distribution of their merchandise through real bills. As well as, they discussed a new proposal which the cloth merchant, who was a very smart man, as you will see as I uh, relate the rest of the story, the cloth merchant made a suggestion, and his suggestion was, well, why bother with three bills? We don't need three bills. You guys just take my bill, which is drawn on me, and use it as a payment. So there it is. They said, well, looks good. Let's try. Why not? So after that meeting, there's only one bill. It was a three-month bill. And the face value of the bill was the amount of that shipment of cloth which the cloth merchant received from the weaver and when the weaver had to uh, and, and that bill was in the possession of the weaver remember he the, the weaver delivers the cloth merchant Ex, yeah, and, and bills the cloth merchant. The cloth merchant accepts the bill under his signature. He says, I accept, and returns the bill to the weaver. And the weaver keeps it, and when the next shipment of yarn comes from the spinner, he will just endorse it on the back. And the endorsement means that he transfers the right to collect the face value at maturity to the next merchant. Now, of course, there has to be an adjustment. And that adjustment, again, is made in terms of small change. But let me just <coughs> make the presentation simple by saying that assuming that this adjustment has been made, the bill has passed on and now it's in the possession of the spinner. And say this took a month because the next shipment of yarn was in one month's time. And now the spinner has the bill, just the one bill, which bill is it? Remember, it's the weaver on the cloth merchant bill. But already an endorsement on the back. And now, the next shipment of, of, of cotton is due. And when the cotton dealer delivers the the cotton to the spinner, they don't bother making a new bill because the cotton dealer is happy to accept that as payment. Again, small adjustment has to be made, but he accepts it 
and waits another month and by that time the previous shipment of cloth is in the store and the consumers had a choice and could uh, uh, look at the thing and found the cloth to his or her satisfaction and bought the cloth. So the gold coin is in the possession of the of the cloth merchant. And let's assume it's time for the bill to mature and the cotton dealer just goes to the uh, cloth merchant on whom the bill was drawn and he promised to pay that face value at maturity and then the uh, bill is paid, it did its job, the consumer has the cloth and the, uh, the other merchants uh, got their payment and the payment is always in gold coin. So this was the big step that instead of three bills, just the one bill, the last uh, phase of that movement, the maturing good, that bill was powerful enough to do all that clearing. It's clearing again, no lending, no borrowing is involved. So the tradesmen were enthusiastic. The experiment was successful. It was a breakthrough. The physical movement of the gold coin was reduced to its irreducible minimum. You couldn't economize anymore with the use of gold because the purpose was not to eliminate gold. The purpose was to economize with the use of gold, make the gold movement of the gold coin more efficient and this certainly has in this day have succeeded. The economy in the movement of the gold was achieved by giving temporary monetary privileges to the bill drawn on the cloth merchant. The weaver on cloth merchant bill that's the one of the three which survived, circulates, because that is a circulation, as it goes from one merchant to the other. When they get the shipment, they just make an adjustment and pass, pass on the bill. It was, the bill was readily accepted by the spinner and the cotton dealer in payment. And neither of these two was a party to the deal. The deal between the, um, the uh, weaver and the, cotton, the cloth merchant. That's what the bill was about. This seemingly had nothing to do with the cotton dealer or with the spinner. They were not party to that particular business deal. Yet they were happy to accept it because they knew that there was a real uh, maturing 
product involved, which was seeking a market and the, uh, was ultimately sold, and therefore they, they were satisfied. Nobody complained. Everybody was happy. So the significance of this discovery couldn't be exaggerated, because that was really very, very significant. That, that uh, given any kind of clearing situation with certain uh, movement of maturing good from the producer to the producers to the ultimate consumer, uh, the final bill can act as if it was money. It was not money, but it had certain monetary pre uh, uh, features which made it suitable for that purpose. So it was also clear that this circulation owed its existence to the movement of the good. There has to be some good moving. If for any reason that movement was stopped, then the whole system would break down in a matter of days. This just assumes that there is a dynamics behind because some good is moving fast, sufficiently fast to the ultimate consumer. As long as it does, the bill can move in the other direction. But if there is a hitch, the thing won't work anymore. So the emphasis is on the word movement. The cloth merchant experimented with bills which represented merchandise that was stored for some reason, such as uh, they expected an increase in price, so they said, well, why sell it today when I can sell it tomorrow for a large amount? So he built up an inventory which was not moving. And very soon he found out that then the system just started sputtering. It just was not possible to build up a larger merchandise using the facility of bill circulation. I, I leave it to you to worry about the details, but uh, I think that's important to point out that there is a dynamics involved which is very important, the movement of the maturing good. Yes? I, I just want to say, it's pretty clear that the goal doesn't come in within the 91 days, the last guy isn't getting paid. So therefore, he's not going to accept this paper, and that's the dynamics of it. It has to be in that period. That's right. Otherwise, he has to be paid for That's right. There will be bottlenecks. And, uh, the, but as long as there are no bottlenecks, this is just a smooth, actually two movements. One is the movement of the maturing good and the other is the movement of the bill in the opposite direction. So, the, the last bill of the three, the weaver on the cloth merchant bill, was at the head of the line waiting 
to be exchanged for the gold coin. So that's reasonable that of the three bills which originally uh, were drafted, this one was the one which survived and the others fell by the wayside. They were not indispensable, they could be dispensed with. But this one was important because that's the closest to the consumer and that's very important. The whole construction is about supplying the consumer with goods which the consumer wants badly enough and therefore the bill which is closest to the consumer uh, assumes uh, this uh, monetary quality and it could circulate. So. Um, that's right, I just mentioned this is not terribly important for our purposes, but there is a terminological uh, uh, improvement which is due to uh, Böhm Bawerk, another Austrian economist. He is talking about uh, higher order goods and lower order goods. And what this refers to is the semi-finished good and that can be refined. So a first order good is the finished good which is ready to be marketed. Consumer can pick it up as it is and that's the first order good. Second order good is which is needed in order to produce the first order good. You see, and in this case it's the weaver which is involved. And then the third order good which the spinner, the yarn and so on. So I, I just mentioned this because if you are uh, discussing the process, it might be uh, simplification to refer to the to higher order goods, and that there's no end to it. You can have a 99 order good as well if the technological uh, improvement is refined enough, and there are 99 tradesmen involved in handling the maturing merchandise and there are 99 steps to be made before it reaches the ultimate consumer, then you can talk about goods of order 99. Uh, the important thing is that the same principle would be working in every one of these cases because the last uh, step of the way there is a bill drawn on the last retail merchant and that bill will be acceptable by all the 99 tradesmen which are involved in the production process. <coughs> all right, how are we time? So, okay. Yeah, we have another half hour, right? Okay. 
Now, uh, I also use another expression, vertical circulation. Vertical. In other words, that movement I consider vertical, and already the term suggests there will be a horizontal one. So I'm going to mention another situation that's not in that second greatest story which we are talking about. This is now a side story. I will say a little bit about the possibility of horizontal circulation of bills or goods. And this is, this was, this used to be very important in medieval times and uh, the evolution of the real bill also uh, uh, owes a great deal to that other route in, in addition to the vertical circulation of the real bill there, were, there were situations where the horizontal circulation was uh, playing an important role. I gave the title to this section The Merchants of Seville. <laughs> That's not the title of an opera or a drama. Merchant of Venice, for example. No. Uh, first of all, it's in plural. The Merchants of Seville. Now, it just so happens that Seville is a lovely city in Spain and it was one of the greatest. There were many other city fairs in medieval Europe, but Seville was one of the best known and most successful and so on. Uh, so the title Merchants of Seville refers to these, these city fairs in the city of Seville. It was an annual affair. Every year at a certain time everybody in not only in Spain but also in neighboring countries knew that the fair in Seville is coming up and uh, they adjusted their own timetable accordingly. So this fair of Seville was one of the great events in medieval Sp Spain and it used to attract merchants from quite great distances. I guess up to 500 miles, that would not be a problem. Uh, merchants in other parts of Spain and in the neighboring country of France or Portugal or what have you, they could come to the fair bringing their own wares which they wanted to sell at the fair. So they had the horse and the cart and the merchandise packed up and they wanted to be there in time. But here's the thing, these merchants who came to Seville wanted not only to sell, they also wanted to buy. 
because that was a great place where to stack up and take home the merchandise where they could sell it at a profit those goods which were not produced uh, in their area they could be obtained from Seville. So the idea was that both legs of the trip would be fully utilized. They arrived with a fully packed cart full of merchandise they wanted to sell and then they bought the thing they wanted to take home. So again they didn't go with an empty cart, they had a full load of wonderful merchandise which had already market wait, waiting for it back home. What was the hitch? And now I'm asking you, you tell me what was the hitch. Well, that's right, but, but put it in words. Well, if you're going to go and buy stuff, first you have to sell your stuff. Well, that's right. Buy the other stuff. You can buy if you hadn't sold, or, or if you wanted to buy first, then you have to carry a whole bag of gold, and then you are liable to be robbed. The security on the highways was not all that great, and there were highways men who, who could could um, rob you, or or um, it, it's cumbersome in any case. And, and that's not a good way of utilizing gold, is it? To carry 500 miles because you are going to go to Seville and you want to sell your merchandise and then you know that you have to carry gold with you on the way back as well. What a foolish idea, right? Yes. There has to be a solution. I mean, if you put yourself into that situation, you'll immediately see that, that obviously there, uh, there must be a solution to that problem. Central uh, banking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor. <laughs> I knew you were going to pull this out. <laughs> uh, the, the answer to that, uh, Daryl, is that uh, the bankers are smart, but not that smart. <laughs> Tradesmen, you have to give them much more credit for being smart. Because all the tricks, the honest tricks which the bankers have, have been used by tradesmen before. It's only the dishonest tricks which they have a monopoly on. Okay? <laughs> well, all right, joking aside, uh, this was before banking was developed to the extent, and that was the solution. So, what happened was that here is a merchant coming from 500 miles away, arriving in Seville, and then at the city gate, he would register. He would register in his own name and register the merchandise which he has with him. He tells the uh, clerk there that he brought so much this, so much that, and so on, and that's what he wants to sell. And to the extent of the value of the merchandise which he wants to sell, he w would be given, uh, what's the word, scripts or 
chips. I try to see what word I used here, but I mean that's really a bill of exchange, isn't it? He would be given uh, this doesn't mean that the city of Seville bought his merchandise. No. The city of Seville is providing clearing facilities to all the incoming merchants so that they do not have to wait until they sell their wares for cash, for gold, because by that time uh, the top choice might be gone and they just want to have the full benefit of shopping around and for that reason they want to be in the position to start buying right away even before they sold one thing so there it is and that happened not just in Spain and in Seville but there were very famous city fairs in Leipzig in Germany, Lyon in France, and other countries as well. They all had a certain attraction in a certain area, and um, they, uh, this was world trade in those days. That was world trade, and that was how they financed it. Excuse me, but was it quantified? When you say script, was it in form of, could it be quantifiable that it would be like a letter of credit where you could trade against it? That's right. And that's what it was. And, uh, you know, so that's a sideline. The community uh, kind of comes on the hook. Mm-hmm. They're uh, yeah, yeah. co-parties, basically. Yeah. Now, um, you know, for us, this Merchants of Seville is a sideline. And, and I have not worked it out in the same great details. The horizon, this is what I call horizontal uh, bill market. The other, the vertical one, I worked out in great details. But it's very interesting. And uh, I know that there is a huge literature on that as well, which you could dig yourself into and study this. I haven't done that. but. It's not really necessary because if, if you understand the vertical circulation of the real bill, then you will understand the horizontal circulation as well. Of course, uh, safeguards have to be taken. I mean, it's not that you, you can't just uh, put anybody at the gate and he will issue these scripts mm -hmm. and if you tell him twice as much value, you know, I mean, those were tradesmen themselves who were manning the gates and they looked at the merchandise and said, okay, that looks reasonable. You have quality, you have quantity. Well, he's saying that you just couldn't allow a 32-year-old trader no. Society Generale yeah. to bet 70 billion euros on the, on the derivatives markets for you. You know, they have to have some controls there. It was there. a trading community. Trading community. It was a yeah. special place, yeah. and that was the purpose of the yeah. community. Yeah, I, think, I think maybe I can answer, because I was just wondering the same thing. I was going to mm -hmm. clarify it. I mean, if I, if I ride into town, uh, you know, six horses with my assistants to help me, and I say, okay, I have 100 gold ounces worth of cloth to sell at this market, 
uh, and they would look it over and say, yeah, that's probably about what that's worth. They would issue me uh, a script that was worth, that just said 100 gold ounces worth of script. And even if I sold none of it, and simply spent all of it on other um, goods that I wanted to take back, but I was a completely unsuccessful salesman selling my own <laughs> goods, then I assumed that what would happen is I would go to the gate and I would have checked my horses there or something as collateral, and they would have said, well, okay, you know, look, you, you either have to give us, you know, 100 ounces of gold to pay for what you bought, because obviously you didn't sell any of your own, or we're not letting you leave, you know, or whatever, or, or we'll sell your, seize your horses and sell them or whatever. But yeah, there would have been a, I think there would have, I, I can see now sort of how it would have worked and it would have, um, it probably would have rarely had, you know, that kind of an extreme example, but that's how I think they must have, that's, yeah. I, I'm guessing that's how they must have done it. Exactly right. Yeah. They had to assess it yeah. quickly and then have some kind of collateral or some kind of check to make sure that people couldn't just walk out with the stuff they bought. We're probably overanalyzing over your example of the horizontal. Uh, the, the, the principle that you find well, uh, you know, uh, the horizontal circulation of the real bill mm -hmm. is uh, is probably more important. But I don't want to belittle this horizontal. The vertical circulation is working winter, summer, mm -hmm. rain or shine. But this one is seasonal. It happens once a year. You can't have it uh, more often than that because it's a big event. It's uh, people work for the whole year to prepare for that, accumulate the goods, and then and so on. Uh, so that's seasonal, but it's important. It was important, and and I think this should be taught in school how this works. It's a beautiful subject, and I I I just think it's it's a wonderful thing, and uh, I wish I had more time to <laughs> investigate the details. Yes, Rudy. If you don't mind, just add two cents worth to what you said. If you don't sell any stuff, that stuff stays there. Because you pledged your stuff for those hundred gold ounces, and so you, as a merchant, be careful not to over. If they offer you 120, says no, 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 I can't. It's like a mortgage on a house. If you mortgage your house for more than it's worth, you're in trouble somewhere down the line. And so the guy who lent it to you. <laughs> the same thing. As wow. And, and the other thing, of course, the horizontal vertical. Both the thing is it's time constrained. When the fair is over, the script is gone, and merchandise or gold takes its place. And the same thing with the vertical circulation when it's sold, 91 days it's gone. So I think that's the key. Otherwise, you have the Sun Prime Fairground strip. <laughs> 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 Sun Prime is a So let's say the fair lasts for a month. It starts on the first of the month and closes at the end, the 31st. And therefore, these scripts are valid for a month. You buy and sell. It's like money. But it's going to expire in one month time. And everybody knows that. So as the fair is closing at the end of the month, people will have scripts. And they go to the it doesn't mean that you couldn't use gold for trading, they do. But the point is that the goods which came from such a great distance, they have to be given credit. Mm -hmm. Not 
credit from the first source, saving. It's, it, there's no saving, it's clearing. Clearing credit in the form of scripts, and that circulates for a month. Yeah, okay, at the end of the month, uh, people will have so many scripts. Some of them could be left over. You got more scripts, or you may not have sold everything that you wanted. Then you can return it to the office. And those who have sold and got the script as a result, they will be able to exchange it for gold at the fair office. So they, but the point is this, this is not a game to get more gold, this is a game of exchanging merchandise which is mutually, uh, you know, what I buy from you, I put higher value on it than you do and vice versa. So to facilitate this, it's necessary to have this clearing credit in existence and that's what the fair does. It brings about clearing credit and it has to be gold related because if gold was not guaranteeing the thing then enormous amount of fraud could just uh, seep in. Mm -hmm. But the point is that merchants came with merchandise and they want to go back with merchandise and have as little gold either way as possible. And that purpose was served beautifully by this system of clearing at the fairs. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize. So uh, now we see the full meaning of the idea of clearing credit. Uh, we have seen the vertical one, but there's also a horizontal one. So Professor, you could call that a fair clearing. Hmm? You could call that a fair clearing. <laughs> <laughs> fair, very okay. Good. Okay. Where's that? slow down. <laughs> well, I, I just read this because it, it's uh, fairly concise here. They developed an ingenious clearing system using bills of exchange. These scripts are bills of exchange. Maturing on the last day of the fair. Every merchant registered his merchandise at the clearing house upon arrival. Registration gave them the right to accept bills payable at the clearing house where the bills would be offset against one another. Yeah, that's the offsetting, another very good useful English word. You see uh, the various uh, merchants from different geographical areas at the end of the fair go to the clearing house and they are worried only about the difference because uh, because uh, the trades can be crossed, uh, crossed off, okay? If there's a difference, that's payable in gold. So uh, let's not, this should not detain us too long here because that's fairly obvious. So offset against one another and only the difference in face values would be paid in gold coins on the last day of the fair. 
this afforded an amazing economy in the use of the gold coin. It was this economy that was responsible for making the fairs so attractive to merchants coming from faraway places. We may be certain that without the clearing system there would have been no fair and trade would have been limited to that between next door neighbors and that's very limited and, uh, and uh, progress lies in the direction of trading between more distant centers. If merchants traveling those great distances would have had to carry not only their merchandise for sale but also the gold coins with which to make their purchases, they would not have undertaken the trip. Most of them wouldn't. Not the 500 miles away merchants. It just wouldn't have been an attractive idea. But the idea that they were fully uh, utilizing their uh, transportation facilities both ways and a minimum amount of gold was uh, sufficient to make the trip made it very attractive and very successful in the end. There's no denying that the fair system of uh, the medieval towns which were smart enough to introduce it was a great success story. Um, before the medieval fairs, uh, people suffered all kinds of shortages and they uh, were just uh, confined to a very limited choice of goods. For one thing, merchants probably would not have had the gold, but that's one problem. And which was needed uh, to buy the merchandise they wanted to take home with them. And for another thing, on the long trip they would have offered themselves an easy target to highwaymen preying upon the purse of traveling merchants. So the highwaymen knew that uh, they won't get the gold from those they might rob them all the same if they knew what to do with that particular merchandise. But you see gold has a wider appeal and they knew that there's no gold in the possession of these merchants. Circulation of bills of exchange generated at the fair may be described as horizontal in contrast with the vertical, which is our main topic, and we have already discussed it. Uh, these bills were all drawn on first-order goods, consumer goods, finished goods, ready to be sold to the consumer, and they were passed on from hand to hand between retail merchants, uh, rather than, that's why it's horizontal, right? Because in the vertical, you have the journey of the maturing good is from say the fourth order producer to the third order and then to the second and so on. But here in, in at the fair 
the goods move from retailer to retailer. Okay? No higher order goods involved. It's only first order goods. So that's why it's horizontal. Um, The medieval fairs were a marvelous institution promoting trade between faraway regions. Not enough research has been done on this subject. So all those young people who would like to do some meaningful economics, not the, <laughs> not the, the stupid Keynesian uh, pseudo-mathematical uh, type, then this is a topic, a wonderful topic, which could be elaborated. I mean, we hardly scratch the surface here, but at least I have a sense that you all agree with me that this was a great idea which deserves more attention than has been receiving. And, and, and these topics, the clearing house, how it was organized, insurance facilities, uh, the very beginning of banking when it was still good and reliable, right, and so on. So all, all this complex is there for the uh, uh, for the uh, people who are interested in. So this is the thing. I uh, have very little else to say. If you have questions, uh, yes. The question on this morning, uh, when you said that the minimum amount of money they have to create is to pay the interest on the debt. Uh, could you talk a little more about this, if you don't mind? Yeah, there, there is so much debt in the world at any given time, say at this moment. There's so much, okay. However, that debt is drawing interest. So the question is, where is the interest coming from? It has to be money which has to be created. And, as, and, and, and you probably know that the growth is exponential when it's interest. And the principle of compound interest means growth and it's exponential. Which means it's not along a straight line. It's a steep parabolic curve which goes to infinity much faster than you would along a straight line. So in order for the system to work, the paper money system to work, you have to assume that the extra money needed for interest payment, that's the minimum. It could be much bigger than that, but at the very minimum, if you want the system to work without a hitch, then you have to increase the money supply by the amount which the interest would create. 
Okay. If I understand uh, properly, or my understanding is, if you create less money than the interest rate, than the total interest payment, your money supply is shrinking. Oh, oh so you will have the. If that's your interest payment is a million bucks, and you have to create a million bucks, that means you're zero. And yeah. if you create more than that, your actual outstanding money is increasing, and less than that is decreasing. And of course, as the debt increases, I understand geometric progression, you have to grow faster just to keep level with it. Yeah, that's right. that yes, right? it's an addiction problem. But, it, but, it, but I don't think it's accurate to really to say that the, if I understood you correctly there, the money supply isn't flat in that case if you're just growing up to pay the interest. It's growing up because once you pay that interest, that money is still out there in circulation. But the, the debt holders now have that coupon payment that you've given them if, if you're the debtor. Uh, and so the total money supply increases by that. That suggests to me that, that the true rate of inflation can never be less than the average right. rate of interest uh, on that's the right. You're right. That's, that's the point yeah. I was yeah. trying. That's yeah. a, you, you put the right words on the problem. I wanted to highlight that the minimum rate of increase in the money supply is connected to the rate of interest. But can I, oh sorry, go ahead. No. Okay. But, uh, you're right, I'm, I'm having a little difficulty understanding that as well. In Under the gold standard, or, or under uh, before the uh, before uh, central banking, debt could never, it just could never really grow that much because there were, there were no. absolute limits on the amount of gold coin out there to allow long-term debt to be issued. You could no. have all the clearing money that you needed in terms of real bills, but you could never have the long-term debt for capital formation because there just wasn't enough gold coin out there. There's the banker's constraint. In that exactly. I, I would change the wording slightly. I would say gold was the test of the quality of the credit. And some people, the more conservative-minded people, found it necessary from time to time to test the quality of debt. And therefore, they just exercised their right to demand payment in gold, which every contract was written into the contract. But not a lot of people say the majority, or even the great majority, didn't bother because they just assumed that the credit was good, that that was good. No, uh, using the subprime example, uh, they were not trying to smuggle in bad debt and unload it to, on you or to you. So, but there were always people cautious enough to test the quality of that from time to time and there was no other way to test the quality but demand gold in payment. So you don't need that much gold corresponding to the outstanding debt because th th that was not necessary. But you did uh, have to have some. And uh, in certain periods it was a greater amount, in other periods less lesser amount for that purpose. Yeah. And that was a check on the, not just on the quality of that, but on the quantity as well. Because remember, after a time when quantity increases without bounds, the quality is going to deteriorate. 
So the, this is why that was controlled. And that's why you have to have gold. Because under our present system there is just no way to uh, test the quality of that. And that is the problem the banks have. That's why they no longer trust each other. Because they know that there are so, much, so many losses coming out of this um, subprime crisis, which is only part of it. There's the other one, commercial paper crisis, a lot of bad debt. And then uh, the insurance, bond insurance, a lot of rotten debt there. And there is no easy way uh, to actually, there is no way, period, to test. Yeah, I miss I misspoke there. It, it's not the gold coin that limits it, because of course, just like now, if you had a, a revenue property that was earning income, you could you could take a mortgage against that because they could see that there were gold coins coming in. So, but you're right. It's the test. Um, it, it's it's the yeah. See, ta over time, the system. You don't have to create a crisis for a system to be tested. Time will bring those crises. It's, it's, it will do it. You don't it's, have to have an artificial test. When, when bankers test risk, all right, and that's what they're talking about, the, the quality of risk that's happened today, is that they, did dis, they discounted it for the last six years. There was so much liquidity in the markets that nothing went broke. There's money everywhere. So a lot of these models developed in a low-risk environment or an absence of risk environment, and huge amounts of money were bet on it. And now it's it's coming it's coming home, but I, I think the uh, when the professors talked about the uh, the necessity for the growth of credit, it's it's what the the uh, banking system introduced that hadn't been there before, all right, and they they introduced it because they wanted unlimited money that they could print. The consequence of that is unlimited debt. Okay, they went into it with a front end dream, we are now looking at the back-end nightmare of it. And listening to the professors today has been very interesting for me. It, it really has, because he's talking about medieval clearing houses, how it happened before. And the truth of the matter is, I, I, I mean, Professor, I really think that your, your value is, is, that, is in a lot of ways. And it's not just talking about sound money, is that there, was a, there were processes in place that have developed over centuries to develop with economic situations and exchanges that were tried and true. I mean, this, you know, you biting on a piece of gold, a coin, was their level of going like this. You think their level of going like that is anything? When that is a piece of junk anyway now? But so we're at the point where we're seeing a systemic collapse of everything they've created. And I was just listening to you thinking, the, what you're showing us is that we, these things may be necessary. In the, very, in, the, in the very future. The Soviet Union did not collapse because of political crisis. Mm. It collapsed because of inherent economic contradictions, as you mm. pointed out. The collapse of the credit markets in the United States are going to collapse, not because of political opposition. I mean, it fell over, but because of inherent economic contradictions. Something is going to happen to take its place. Trade is going to develop. Commerce is still going to go on. And it's best that we have some sense of what happened before. Mm -hmm in the future. It's like in Japan where in the situation where you have to grow the debt to keep the bubble yes, system going. Absolutely. But people won't borrow that. So the man in the street says, I don't want any more debt. So what happens is the percentage of the economy that goes to the government has to grow because they're the only people who can 
print the money. They print, be bubbling it themselves. Yes. They pave all of Japan. Yes. Yeah. And and the shift from the man in the street generating wealth to this fiction of the government putting money into the economy any way they can happens just so they can keep the whole bubble going. Japan has a GDP that man creates this. Yeah, shrinks, shrinks, shrinks. shrinks. The chunk the government creates goes up, up and up and up. up. Japan has the highest GDP rate per se per any, in the world. Government debt to GDP in the world. No, yeah, highest, higher, higher than us. Yeah. And and that was fairly recently oh, created. Started in 1990. Yeah. Before that, before that, there's very little. Yeah, very little. And then since 1990, the government revenues in Japan have shrunk by 50 percent. 50%. So you have the revenue shrinking, continue to shrink. You have the debt increasing merely to stand still in a system that broke down in 1990 and it still hasn't been fixed. That's right. And I think what we're looking and today. And it's deflation. And it's deflation. It is deflation. We are on, we're going to look at that here today, except the consequence is going to be even larger. We're even, we are the economy. What is it? That, that, that song that they did, We Are the World? We are the bubble. <laughs> and, and you know, I still remember in 1990, the money doctors from the United States went to Japan and twisted their arms. You've got to inflate, you've yeah. got to inflate. And they did, and it created deflation. It, it created deflation. They just are not allowed to use the word deflation. Yeah. And, and also what people don't know is, the Japanese, which were the wealthiest country in the 1980s because of the trade, mm. they, they were just, they were a powerhouse. I mean, they could buy anything that they had over here. Right. They were going to start putting their money into gold. The U.S. twisted their arm again, kept them from doing it. Mm. They wanted, no, as, as, as the professor told us in, in, um, in Hungary last summer, is that Germany and Japan are both occupied countries economically still. That's right. That's how he said that, and it's true today. China isn't. We'll make Uncle Sam cry, Uncle. In nineteen ninety-six, I asked that question of Milton Friedman in the New Orleans conference, when you could see that Japan was was stuck and was imploding and was in deflation, and I said, "It seems to me that America is just on the same course. We're just going to." the same place because all money is borrowed into existence. And his response was, oh, don't give me that that old horse, you know, that all money is borrowed into existence because we as a government can always print money to pay our employees. And that was huh. that was his response. Uncle Milty. <laughs> Uncle Milty. You know, Milton Burl. He Milton Milton Friedman is a bigger comedian than Milton Burl. Yeah. You know, that's wonderful. You Thank you. Point that you cannot force demand in the free market. That's right. You're pushing on the string, and I think you, you started when you implied that about Japan, and, and that will yeah. be the failure. Milton Friedman's idea, uh, uh, the money has two characteristics to me. You've got absolute quantities, and then you have velocity. And it's simplistic to look at absolute quantities. You, you can't do it in isolation. You have to consider velocity. And velocity, when things start to implode, it's you lose velocity. Yes. You cannot force demand. In a That's deflation. And the big difference is that in Japan, they didn't have full control of the people because the people had savings. Right. But in the United States, where people don't have savings, mm -hmm. because they continue to borrow themselves into oblivion, people I mean, are going to wake the up. The measure say, of the crisis yeah. will be so dramatic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pain and anguish will be so. Yeah. It's a dramatic.
we're losing demand just instantaneously. Eight seconds tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, about 4.10. Let's make it half an hour. So we reconvene at 4.40. Thank you.